amazing thought that is. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and just let me say, if we're able to get through this, it'll be by the grace of God. Um, and just bear with me as I might cough uh, along the way. Um, but let me just say this. Welcome to week three of a series that I believe is stirring us up as a people in a very good way. Um, what we're doing is this series, um, it's called Dangerous Prayers. We're learning to pray some different types of prayers, what we're calling dangerous prayers. They're not predictable. Um, they're not easy prayers. They're not safe prayers. They're they're dangerous prayers, meaning that if we truly pray them and believe them, God is going to do a work in our, our hearts and in our, our lives. Uh, we started out week one of this series praying, God, search me, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxiety. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Last week was, Lord, break me. So as you show me what's Going on in my life, as you show me the condition of my heart, break me of those things. Break me of my pride. Break me of my, my sin. And before we kind of get into today's, let me just, let's do a little self-identification um, exercise. How many of you in here would consider yourself to be a safe person? You play it safe. You don't take a whole lot of risk. You, you are safe per people. Now, how many of you consider yourself a dangerous person? You take risk live on the edge, so to speak. I guess a different way to put this is think about um, jumping out of a plane, skydiving. Um, how many of you would consider yourself, you're on the ground looking up, um, safe people? How many of you, you're the dangerous person, you're looking down ready to jump out of the plane? Uh, so I, how did I know? How did I know who that would be? Um, yeah, but think about this. But for both groups, whether you consider yourself a safe person or a dangerous person, what we find true for both groups is that our prayers are often safe. Both of our um, prayers, whether you're a dangerous person or a safe person, our prayers are often safe. And as we saw last week, our prayers should be like God himself. They should be amazingly good. They should be amazingly big. But they shouldn't necessarily be safe because God is not safe. In fact, God might be a little bit dangerous. I love the words of Drew Dyke, who wrote a book um, entitled Yawning at Tigers, You Can't Tame God, So Stop Trying. And in it, here's what he writes. He says, I'm done apologizing for God. Hey, listen, God is dangerous. That is the way the Bible portrays him. You don't have to like it. You can deny his existence. Excuse me. You can pet him if you like. Just don't expect your arm back. I'm done trying to explain God's dangerous qualities away because some of it isn't explainable and because at some level we must simply accept the way he has chosen to reveal himself. So the living God of the universe is untamable. He is good, but he is not safe. And if you try to subdue him, you might lose an arm or even worse. Um, so today we come to this picture of dangerous prayers continuing in this picture of God search me, God break me. And today's prayer is accompanied with an amazing, glorious revelation of God. And the prayer we're going to be unpacking in our time together is the prayer, God send me. God send me. Send me beyond my comfort zones. God send me into your world, God. Send me for your 
purposes. And what these dangerous prayers tend to do, whether when we're praying, God, search me, God, break me, God, send me, is they're pushing us out of our comfort zones. And I don't know if you've ever taken time to think about what a comfort zone is. Most of the time, if I were to ask you what your comfort zone is, you would just say it's my safe place. But really, your comfort zone is it's a me circle where everything revolves around you. So that's what a comfort zone is. It's a me circle where everything revolves around you. You are either the king or the queen of your circle, and you're not going to do anything that's going to upset you. So that's kind of what a comfort zone is. Yet what prayer does is prayer pulls us out of those me circles because prayer is ultimately praying for God's kingdom and not for ours. So prayer will ultimately take us out of our me zones and put us in a place where God would um, best use us. We realize that God is the king. So send me is a prayer where we're leaving the me circles of our, our lives. And what this prayer is asking God to do is to send us out of our will and send us into his will. Yet I also know this. I know that immediately what comes to most of our minds when we think about the prayer, send me, is we immediately envision ourselves being sent by God to Africa where we're going to be miserable for the rest of our lives. And so that, that becomes the immediate thought. And let me just say this. If you're worried today about praying the prayer, send me, um, and you're afraid that God is going to immediately banish you to some faraway country and you're going to live the rest of your life just being absolutely miserable. And let me just say this, fear not. So fear not. Um, God is probably not going to send you um, right this minute to a faraway land, although he might. But for most of us in this room, God is going to begin with us exactly where he began with Isaiah, sending him to his own people and to his own nation with a, a message that must be proclaimed. And this is what we're going to see in our time together when we kind of unpack this, this picture of Isaiah. And some of the questions that are going to hang over us this morning is, is this. What, what is needed for us to truly be able to, to pray this prayer in an honest way? Or how are we going to respond when God answers our, our prayer with a clear direction? Will we leave our, our me circles and will, will we plant ourselves in the circle of, of his will? I, I pray that as we walk through these today that we will answer these questions with a, an affirmative answer in a way that will make much of his name and much of, of his will. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read Isaiah 6, 1 through 8 together. And then dive into this together as a faith family. So beginning at verse 1, it says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, 
having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you, and in this moment we ask, Lord, that what we know not, may you teach it to us. What we have not, God, we ask that you would give it to us. And Lord, what we are not, we ask that you would make us. For the sake of your glorious name, speak to us today through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you may be seated. So just think about those words, here I am, send me. When we humbly, when we humbly and sincerely pray this prayer, here's what we know. God could direct us um, in many different ways. He may lead us to a different city. He might lead us to a different part of the world. He may reveal a calling in our lives that we never expected before. Um, He may lead us to stay somewhere when we just knew he was calling us to go somewhere else. Um, He may move us to end a relationship that is not beneficial to us, or he may lead us to take the initiative in restoring a relationship that has been broken. He might lead us to a different job. He might um, call us to serve somewhere. In fact, I I definitely believe he would call us to serve somewhere. He might lead us from being a cat lover to a dog lover. I don't know what it is that God might call us all to, but here's what I know. When we make ourselves available to God, God will lead us in a way that we never expected, but it will always be for our good. Always be for our good. It will always be for his glory when we pray this prayer, when we lay it on the table. So in our time this morning, what I want us to do is we're going to dive into two fundamental truths concerning the calling of God and concerning the prayer of willingness before him and and what that means. And we're going to to lay these out and we're going to kind of uh, unpack a lot of different things to go along with it. So the first truth is this. First truth is there are universal choices when facing the calling of God. There are universal choices when facing the calling of God. So all throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are different responses to the call of God. And these responses don't just stop in in Scripture. They are um, throughout time. They're throughout the the world that we live in. Um, They tend to be going on even today. So there's three different responses that we see in Scripture and even more, but we're going to focus on three. So I want to look at three biblical, universal um, responses to the calling of God. The, The first we will call the response of Jonah. We know this one very, very well. It is this, God, I will not go. I will not go. We know this story. Think about Jonah chapter one. We, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah, who was a prophet of God, meaning that he was used to receiving messages from God and giving messages from God. And the message came saying to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. And he says, call out against it. But then we're told Jonah arose to flee um, to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So the response of Jonah is, God, I will not go. Jonah ran from God because Jonah did not have the heart of God. 
God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, and instead Jonah ran the other way, and not just a little ways. Jonah was trying to go to Tarshish, 2,500 miles away. Um, would take him up to a year to sail to, the, to, to there. So think about this. A prophet of God, God comes to him. God says, go to Nineveh. Jonah says no. And let me lay this before you. We are never further away from God than when we're close to him and we say no. We're never further away from him than when we're close to him and we say no. And listen to what it says of Jonah. It says, Jonah was running away from the presence of the Lord. In Hebrew, that word presence is the word panem, and it means face. So Jonah was running away from the face of the Lord. Which what that means is this. Jonah knew he could not run away from God. But what Jonah was trying to do is run away from fellowship with God. He was trying to run away from a place where he didn't have to hear from God anymore. Basically, when God's presence went one way and what Jonah wanted went the other, Jonah chose what he wanted. Or to put it a different way, Jonah chose his presence over the presence of God. Think about how often we do that. We think that we're more trustworthy than God. We think that our presence is much more um, comforting than God's presence. So we choose our presence. How valuable is God's presence to, to us? And I think if we're going to be honest this morning, and once again, church is always a good place to be honest. Um, we all have had moments, I think every one of us in this room have had moments where we knew without a doubt that God was calling us to do something. To say something, to go somewhere, to do something, and we didn't do it. We looked God right in the face and we said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to tell that person. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that, whatever it is. You were given a clear direction from God, yet it didn't fit your plan. It didn't fit your expectations. So you looked God in the face and you said, no. Could it be that some of us in this room, that's exactly where we are today? And by the grace of God, God has brought you here um, by his grace so that you can say, okay, God, yes. Yes, God, whatever it is, yes, I, I, will, I will do it. But the response of Jonah is just as real today. God, I will not go. Then we have the second, the response of Moses, which is this. Send someone else. Send someone else. In Exodus 3, we have this beautiful picture of God coming to Moses, the burning bush, God revealing himself, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I have heard my people, and I've come to rescue them, and I'm going to send you to deliver them from Egypt. And in chapter 3, verse 11, it says, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Let me tell you something that maybe you're not aware of. When God speaks, oftentimes we can be very stubborn. And just let that sink in for a second. When God speaks, we have the audacity to be stubborn. Just let that sink in. When God came to Moses, Moses could not let him himself believe that, that he could be useful to God. Yet this was not an invitation. This was a calling. Think about it. You can turn down an invitation, but a calling you either have to obey or, or disobey. And can you imagine the audacity of standing before the one who formed you, the one who 
fashioned you and saying to that one, who am I? Just imagine that. God knows exactly who we are, and God knows exactly who he, he is. I mean, here's the picture. God knows what we're capable of, and apart from him, is hideous. And God knows what he's capable of, and it is absolutely glorious. But here's the point. Moses gives excuse after excuse after excuse leading to chapter 4, verse 13, where Moses says this, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Send anybody else. And it's so easy for us to do the same thing. For us to, to live our lives believing that someone else will do it. Someone else will give. Someone else will go. Someone else will speak. Someone else will serve. We live our lives saying, God, I know you're calling me to do it, but let someone else do it. And what we fail to realize in that moment is God's will is going to be done, and we will miss the blessing. We'll miss the blessing. So the, the response of Moses, send someone else. And then third, the response of Isaiah. Response of Isaiah, here I am, God, send me. Here I am, send me. So Isaiah prays this dangerous prayer, a prayer that I'm laying before us this morning saying, please pray this. Think about this. Look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8 again. Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And think about how you would have responded to that question. God doesn't give a lot of detail there. God doesn't say where. God doesn't say, um, here's what's happening. Think about this. We might have been tempted in that moment to say, well, God, where are you talking about here? You know, where might you be sending me? Or is it a safe place? Is the climate nice? Um, is, what's the cost of living there? Do I have some vacation time along the way? That's how we might answer the question. That's not how Isaiah answered the question. Basically, God gave Isaiah a blank contract, and Isaiah signed it and said, Here I am, send me. A blank contract, and he says, Here I am, send me. What a dangerous prayer. But here's the question Do you know God that way? Do you love God that way that you would put your yes on the table before God even puts the assignment on the table? Let's be honest, most of us are going, God, you got to give me a 10-step plan. And if you give me the 10-step plan, I may or may not agree to it, and I might change a few of those plans. But here's the reality. When you and I put our yes on the table, and we start praying, God, send me, I guarantee you, here's what's going to happen. God will interrupt you. God will prompt you in certain ways that you were not expecting him to prompt you. God will move upon you, and you'll suddenly realize that God has more in store for you than you have in store for yourself. Amen. Or as we always say around here, that God wants for us what we would want for ourselves if we had sense enough to want it. So we'll realize that God has that in store. And the, the question becomes for us, how do we get there? How do we get to a place where beyond all the selfishness, beyond all the things that we hold on to, that we have this attitude before God, that we say, God, here am I, send me whatever it is. How do we get to a place of full surrender before God? And that leads us to the second truth, which is this. 
there are undeniable realities in beholding the presence of God. There are undeniable realities in beholding the presence of God. So before Isaiah got to those words, here am I, send me, he first had to have an accurate and and biblical encounter with God. Everything else that happens in this chapter happens because Isaiah has an encounter with God. This is a picture here. So in looking at Isaiah in the presence of God, there are a few things that become clear, a few undeniable realities that will get us to that point where we say, here I am, send me. The first is this, we see God for who he is. We see God for who he is. Look at verse 1 again. Verse 1 says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. King Uzziah had reigned in Judah for 52 years. He was one of the better kings that reigned over Judah. For most of his career, Uzziah was noted as one who was a great and beloved king who who loved the Lord. Think about this. For most of the people in Judah, he was the only king they'd ever known. 52 years, only one they'd ever known. So when he died, even though his last few years were kind of marred with with disobedience and, and pride, it was still a time of national mourning and it was still a time of national uncertainty. The questions began to rise up. What's going to happen to Judah? Will the next king honor God like Uzziah honored God? And In the middle of all this mourning and in the middle of this confusion, Isaiah goes to the temple of the Lord, and he understands that although an earthly king had died, there was a heavenly king that was still alive. Or to put it in a different way, Isaiah saw that there was a throne in heaven, and God was on it. There was a throne in heaven, and God was on it. Or in the words of, of Psalm 92, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And what that means, in case you're wanting to know what that means, is that God was the living God when the universe banged into existence. What I mean by banged is when God said, let there be light, and bang, there was light. Um, God was the living God when King Uzziah died and he was still on his throne. God was the living God when Socrates drank his poison. God was the living God when William Bradford uh, governed Plymouth Colony. God was the living God in 1966 when, when Thomas Altizer proclaimed him dead and Time Magazine put it on the cover. And here's the beautiful thing. God will be the living God 10 trillion ages from now. This is the picture of who our God is. So Isaiah not only saw that God was alive, he saw God in all his majesty and all his glory. It says, says this, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple with glory. The text goes on to introduce us to these angelic beings named seraphims. It means burning ones. They are Literally burning up, yet not consumed in the presence of God. And these angelic beings are worshiping God nonstop in God's presence, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this is what this whole encounter is about. It's about the holiness of God, that God is without sin. He is without equal Three times, so three times the word holy is sung in succession, um, showing a sign of emphasis, making it super important. Think of the word holy with 100 exclamation points behind it. That's kind of what we're trying to get to here. 
Only one time in Scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree, meaning this. Not one time in Scripture do we read that God is love, 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 although God is love. Not one time in Scripture do we read that God is merciful, 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 even though God is merciful. Not one time in Scripture do we read that God is powerful, 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 although he is all-powerful. But here we do read that God is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his glory. May we never forget that God is in a class all by himself. He is one of a kind, meaning that God is God. And the God we worship is the God of Isaiah 6, who is high and lifted up. We must not forget who he is, brothers and sisters. And think about this. When Isaiah saw God, when he experienced the glory of God, it transformed him. Why is it that most Christians aren't available to God? Let me tell you why. Because they have not had a recent encounter with the presence of God. Most, most professing Christians have gotten to a place where they are worshiping a God that they have created themselves. And let me tell you what happens. People will always grow bored with a God that they invent. You will always grow bored with a God that you invent. But when we encounter the true and living God who has the power to snatch our arms off because he is a tiger, we don't mess around with him. We, we don't get bored with him. And when we have an encounter with him, we all of a sudden become available before him. So this is the picture. What we need is to see God for who he is. We need a, a biblical and an accurate vision of God. We need to know that he is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his glory. So the, the first reality is we see God for who he is. Then the second reality is this. We see ourselves for what we are. So the second reality is we see ourselves for what we are. So the effect of seeing God for who he is is that we see ourselves for what we are, and what we are is corrupt. What we are is sinful. Think about this. When Job saw the Lord, Job said, I repent in dust and ashes. When Simon Peter recognized Jesus as having authority over all creation, Simon Peter fell at his feet and cried, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Excuse me. And when Isaiah saw himself in light of the holiness of God, Isaiah cried out, Woe is me. Think about this. Isaiah, in the midst of all that's going on, doesn't just go, wow, this is awesome. No, he says, woe is me. I am undone. I am lost. I have unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. Let me tell you why God's holiness is so terrifying. God's holiness is so terrifying because it reveals to us that our goodness, and so our goodness is the glue that holds us together. The holiness of God reveals to us that our goodness is not very good. That's what the holiness of God reveals to us is that our goodness is not very good. In fact, let me just give you something. I'm going to argue that one of the biggest lies that's being told in our culture is this. I'm a good person. You're a good person. We're all good people. 
one of the biggest lies that's being told in our culture today. Here's the reality, brothers and sisters, apart from Christ, we are not good people. We are evil and wicked people. Welcome to First Baptist Ocean Way, where we're here to make you feel better about yourselves. I mean, just think about that. Without Christ, apart from Christ, we are evil sinners. But when God's presence enters our lives, it humbles us. But it also makes us sick of ourselves. In fact, one of the surest signs that you've never met God is that you feel okay with yourself. That you feel yourself as being pretty good. If we never see God as holy, then we'll never take sin seriously. God takes sin seriously. So Isaiah sees the presence of God, the holiness of God, and then the first thing he does is look at himself. And he sees, has a genuine awareness of his sinfulness. And he says, woe is me. In other words, he says this, I'm done. I'm nothing. I'm pathetic. I'm a sinner. I have nothing to offer. He says, God, you're holy. I'm sinful. God, you're righteous. I'm unrighteous. God, you're full of glory, and I'm just full of sin. This is how he sees himself. So he says, woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm undone. God, I, I have evil and unclean lips, and I dwell among a people that's just like me. So what, what does it take for us to, to be fully surrendered to God? We have to see God for who he is. We have to see ourselves for who we are. But just thank God it doesn't stop there. Number three is this. We see forgiveness for what it is. We see forgiveness for what it is. When Isaiah saw the holiness of God, he was rightly terrified. We should be terrified by who God is. God is dangerous. We shouldn't trifle with God. But that holiness was not just terrifying for Isaiah. That holiness was also cleansing. The same God that dazzled him with his holiness and perfections also brought a coal from the altar to touch his lips, declaring him clean. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And if you're not careful, you miss something that happens. Previously, Isaiah had just said, I am a man of unclean lips. So where does God touch him? God touches him right at the very place of his confession. God didn't touch his head. God didn't touch his feet. God didn't touch his stomach. God didn't touch even his heart. In that moment, Isaiah said, my lips are evil, and God touches his lips. The very place of his confession. But don't miss this. What this picture is, it shows us forgiveness for what it is. And what forgiveness is, is an act of God's grace. What, what enables God to welcome the sinner home is his grace. It's his grace and love for us. When we abuse him, when we treat him so disrespectfully, and yet God says, come home. Come home. It is his absolute grace. And when we understand his grace, his grace brings us to a place of full surrender. 
Isaiah saw the presence of God. Isaiah recognized that he was ruined. Yet one touch from the grace of God and his sins are forgiven. God separated Isaiah's sins as he does ours as far as the east is from the west to remember them no more. For when we, or if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Somebody somewhere might get excited about that. Maybe someone who has experienced that forgiveness might get excited about the fact that our God actually takes our sins and remembers them no more. He cleanses us of our sin. So when you and I, brothers and sisters, when we understand the grace of God, it transforms everything in our lives. When we sense God's presence, we also sense our sinfulness. And when we experience God's undeserved grace in our lives, the only response that we have is this, here am I, God, send me. People who who have experienced grace like this don't serve God begrudgingly, and they don't serve God because they have to. People who have experienced God's grace like this serve God joyfully and thankfully, and they serve God because they get to. Not because they have to, but because, are you kidding me? He has forgiven me a debt that I could never pay back, and I get to serve him with my life? Are you kidding me? God, here I am. Send me. God, send me. I trust you. So think about this. Have you, in light of the holiness of God and light of the grace of God over you, have you ever gotten to a place where you put your yes on the table? Will you humbly place your life before this holy God, trusting him, not with just your salvation? It's amazing how we want to trust God with our eternal salvation, but we refuse to trust God with our lives. Isn't that crazy? God, we trust you that you'll save me forever, but I don't really trust you to do anything for me right now. That's ridiculous that we would ever even allow that thought. If God, if I can trust God with my eternal security, guess what? I can trust him for tomorrow. And I can trust him, Lord willing, 10 years from now. Whatever he gives me, I can trust him with it. So Isaiah had this vision to be sent by God. But let me tell you something. Right? Let me say, that, say it differently. Isaiah had to have a vision in order to be sent by God. We don't. And let me tell you why we don't. Because we have a command given to us by our Savior. And that command is this. As you are going, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of this age. Isaiah had to have a vision. We don't because we have a command from our Savior. Therefore, when we pray, God, send me, we're not asking for a new mission. We're asking to be a part of the mission that Christ has given to us. So how do we get ourselves in a place where we have the courage to pray this dangerous prayer of send me? And here's where it is. We have an experience with God. We see God for who he is. We see ourselves for what we are in our sinfulness. 
We experience the grace of God in forgiving us. And when that happens, you don't just try to, you get to serve God with your life. Some people will say, God, I'm not going. I'm not going to do it. Other people will say, God, send someone else. But for those of us who have truly experienced God's grace in forgiveness, we will say, here I am, send me. Send me to my homes. Send me to my house, God. Send me to my neighborhood. Send me to my work. Send me to my school. Send me, God, to different things that I do. Send me, Father. Send me. I, I heard a pastor say something this week that really stirred my heart. God loves us so much that he sent his son. But I want you to think about your circle of influence. People you work with, people you live next to, people you hang out with on a daily basis, and your circle is unique to you. But here's the beautiful thing. God loves that circle that you live in so much that he sent his son for them. But God also loves them so much that he has put someone in their life that knows him. And that is, guess what? It's you. God has put you and me in the lives of other people so that they may know how much he loves them. Let's not miss that. So sometimes when we think God sent me, we forget the fact that we have a circle of influence that God is just wanting us to go to and let them know how much he loves them. May we not miss any opportunity to talk about the holiness of our God and his grace towards us. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. And we're going to call Brother Frank up. And Miss Carolyn, I've got to, be, got to be nice in this moment. I can't say spunky. Never mind, I guess I can. But let, let's, let's pray together. And fathers, we come before you thinking about these dangerous prayers, Father. Thinking about, Lord, search us. Show us, God, the condition of our hearts. As you do so, Father, break us. That we would say, as Isaiah said, woe is me. God, we see you for who you are. You are holy. And because we see you for who you are, we see ourselves for who we are. We can not just get by by comparing ourselves to other people when we've seen you. And because we've seen you, God, we know who we are. We're sinful. We've missed the mark. We've fallen short of your glory. But we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your forgiveness, God. Thank you for what you did for us through your son, Jesus. And we thank you, God, that because of your grace, because of your mercy, because of what you've done for us, we don't have to serve you. We get to serve you. Lord, we are able to give you our lives. Father, I pray today, God, that you would help us, Lord, to get past the, the fear that might be holding us back. Lord, realizing that fear is nothing but a liar. And to be able to, Lord, put our yes on the table. To even do as Isaiah did, to sign the blank document before we even know what it means. Or even know where you might send us or where we might go. But we trust you enough 
We believe you enough, God, that we're going to sign it. Father, I pray today that we would put that yes on the table. That we would say, God, send us. Whatever that means. Whatever that means, Father. For most of us, it's, Lord, send us to that circle of influence. Send us to those people that we're in contact with every day so that they may understand and know, God, that you love them. For others of us, God, it might mean more than we even expect. But even in that, God, we're going to trust you. We're going to trust that you have nothing but good for us and glory for yourself. So, God, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.